You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Life of Jesus, episode number 45, Gethsemane and Before Caiaphas. This is from, these episodes are from the book by Brother Melva Perkis by the same name, A Life of Jesus. It is read for us by Brother Paul Creswell. Now following the sensitive reading of the account of the last hours of the Lord's mortal life, the terrible time of suffering was now coming upon him. Yet for the joy set before him, he would endure, despising the shame. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Jesus, a devotional study by Melva Perkis. Book 7, Chapter 11, Gethsemane. In the light of the Paschal Moon, Jesus led his disciples from the City of Shadows across the waters of Kedron to the darkness of Gethsemane. It was a familiar spot. When circumstances had made it difficult to reach Bethany, it had been their shelter for the night. But on this night it was different. The joy and confidence with which he had encouraged his disciples was ebbing, as he looked back at the walled city with its flickering lights, concentrating for a moment upon its gates, and then pressed forward again towards the olive trees. He left most of his disciples on the fringe of the garden, and called his three beloved friends to follow him as he penetrated further among the trees. Finally he stopped. He spoke in a voice more troubled than they had ever known. My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. They saw him go forward about a stone's cast and throw himself suddenly down among the gnarled roots of the olive trees in an abandonment of grief and prayer. Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. We must ever look upon this prostrate form of our beloved Lord from the distance which separated him from his three disciples. We could not approach nearer if we would. Yet he desired his loved ones to witness the price he paid, that they might learn as much as the human heart can stand and the human mind conceive. That learning this, they might love him more fervently, and loving be his disciples indeed, bound to him by the fellowship of his sufferings. With sad and reverent hearts we seek the cause of this desolation of spirit. 
feared of death, even the excruciating death that he knew awaited him, was surely not a prominent factor. The one who touched the leper's scaly flesh, who stood on the bulwarks of the storm-tossed boat, who fearlessly faced enemies armed to kill him, did not fear the wrath of man. There was little that was physical in his human cry for release from the cup that was now pressed to his lips. It was mental and spiritual. The Psalms which reveal so faithfully the spirit of Jesus led us into Gethsemane. Let us go there now, and, turning our eyes from that dejected form, read the words of Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying, my throat is dried, mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would cut me off, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren, and an alien unto my mother's children. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, Answer me in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overwhelm me, neither let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Answer me, O Lord! for thy loving-kindness is good. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, turn thou unto me, and hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in distress. Answer me speedily. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. We lift our eyes from the page, look again at the bowed form in the fitful light, and enter a little further into that dreadful hour. There are those who point out the increased sensitiveness of Christ to physical suffering, but have we realised his sensitiveness to sin? He lived in the presence of his Father, in an atmosphere of holiness and light. He went down to the shame and ignominy of a criminal's death. His pure mind had to face all the degradation of mockery, exposure and crucifixion. He was made sin for us, who knew no sin. 
And because he was bearing the sin of the world and accepting the curse of the tree, he must be alone, forsaken not only by the people he had come to save, not only by those who were about to leave him and flee, but above all, by the one from the light of whose countenance he had never departed. He knew that the terrible cry of Psalm 22 would be wrung from his lonely, aching heart. Already the horror of greater darkness was upon him. The Lord was laying upon him the iniquity of us all. Bearing iniquity was a desolating experience. It was here, not on the morrow in Jerusalem, that our Saviour was undergoing the ordeal of his trial. All that happened to him afterwards would be physical. This was his hour. This was his victory. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. After a timeless interval, he rose to his feet and groped his way towards his friends. But weariness had triumphed over their love. They had slept as the dreadful conflict swayed between life and death. He had been alone indeed. There had been no human hand to grip, no eye to witness, no heart to share the agony of this loneliness. Could ye not watch with me one hour? Yet even in the darkness of that hour, with the hurt tearing into his soul, his thought was for them. Watch ye and pray that ye enter not into temptation. For a fleeting moment his features relaxed as he saw their tired, pitiable faces looking stupidly up at his. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then he left them once more, and the conflict was renewed in all its agony. Sweat formed on his brow and fell like drops of blood to the ground. Once more the cry of submission answered the call for release. The conflict went on. The disciples were still asleep when he reached them. For the third time he joined issue with the protesting forces of his will. This time he found he was not alone. An angel of God stood with him, and with the angel the vision of the glory that was to be accomplished. He found new strength in the presence of the heavenly messenger, and with his final victory came a peace which did not desert him until the last moments on the cross. The conflict was over. Jesus went back to his exhausted disciples. All the trouble and pain had gone from his voice, but they were too tired to notice. Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. We can see him looking down at the sleeping men. He knew that their Gethsemane would come tomorrow. Terror, sorrow, and dreadful remorse. But they would emerge, and their love would take hold of his once more, 
and they would never forget. Lights flickered among the trees of the garden. There was the sound of men's feet, and an occasional oath rose above the muffled background of voices. Jesus woke his disciples for the last time. Rise up, let us go. He that betrayeth me is at hand. They met in the garden, the two companies, Jesus with his eleven disciples, Judas with the temple soldiers. The leaping flames of the torches gave an atmosphere of unreality to the scene, casting unfamiliar shadows on familiar faces. But the features of Judas were unmistakable. The veneer had gone. The concentrated evil remained. He came forward to perpetrate his final and unforgivable outrage. Hail, Master, he cried, and kissed him. With more grace than we can find in our hearts at the memory of it, Jesus spoke to him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Before Judas could answer, Jesus turned to the men who had come with him. Whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth was the reply. I am he, Jesus answered simply. But the effect was dramatic. Awed by his majesty and his purity, they drew back and fell to the ground. Such was his command over his enemies. He kept it to the end. Through the hours of questioning, the indignities, the final torture, he was always their master. His victory over himself had been won. Now he could triumph over the wickedness of man. But his victories were on his own battlefield, not on theirs. They would win their own hollow conquests. He was seized by rough hands. His thoughts turned to his disciples. Let these go their way, he commanded. And no man turned to hinder them. But... Peter, his love and anger surging to the surface, took the sword which earlier his lord had treated with contempt, and raising it aloft, brought it down with murderous intent. The wild blow succeeded only in severing the ear of the high priest's servant. Immediately Jesus stepped forward and freed himself from his bonds to perform his last miracle of healing. This was not the allegiance he desired. Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. He had come to bring deliverance, not to seek it. Peter had seen a moment before what power Christ wielded over these men if he chose to use it. That power could instantly be supplemented by twelve legions of angels. Once more Jesus addressed himself to his captors. Why this darkness and treachery? Each day during the Passover week he had been in their midst. They knew the answer. 
His arrest had been contrived to outwit the people, particularly those who came from the hills of Galilee. It had to be done secretly and urgently. Even now Caiaphas was waiting impatiently in the city. They moved forward with him, tied with cords in their midst. The disciples saw it. They realized he was going to submit. His death was inevitable. The kingdom was not to be. Their courage evaporated. Fear gripped them. With a last searching look, they turned and fled from the garden, stumbling over the loose boulders of Olivet, and left him alone with his enemies. Chapter 12 Before Caiaphas the trial of Jesus was, in fact, no trial at all. It was judicial murder. There was a pretense of justice, and with difficulties developing and precious time running out, even that was thrown to the winds. The arrest was illegal. Only voluntary witnesses were allowed to bring a wrongdoer to the Sanhedrin. The time of trial was illegal. No capital cases were allowed to be tried after sunset. The cross-questioning and challenge of his judge was illegal. He should have been acquitted immediately. The evidence of the witnesses had failed. But Jesus was arrested by conspiracy, tried by enemies, testified against by hired witnesses. Time was the great factor time and a suitable charge which would allow Pilate to confirm the death sentence. He must be condemned before the multitudes of worshippers realised what had happened. Evil was abroad that night, evil concentrated and unrelieved. This was their hour and the power of darkness. They took him to Annas first. The father-in-law of Caius was fabulously wealthy. The temple offerings had flowed into his coffers for many years. They had helped him to live comfortably, not only in personal opulence, but also in the security afforded by judicious financial arrangement with the highly placed Romans. Though he was no longer the official high priest, he kept the title, as did five of his sons, and he was still the generally acknowledged head of the Sanhedrin, and therefore of the nation. Probably Annas was anxious for a meeting with this man who had constituted such a threat to his position and privileges. The hearing also had the advantage of leaving Caiaphas free to summon as many sympathetic members of the Sanhedrin as possible at the earliest moment. Annas had little success with his captive. He asked him about his teaching, and, with more sinister motive, about his disciples. Quietly, Jesus directed him to those who had heard him. I spoke openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. The first blow fell on his cheek, struck by the rough hand of a temple guard. 
It was the first of many which would disfigure those noble features until he was marred more than any man. Jesus turned to the officer. If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Meanwhile, two of the disciples had rallied from their headlong flight in the garden. Peter, who after the first distracted rush remembered his loyalty, and John, who remembered his love. They had stood together watching the company below, marking its course by the light of the distant torches. Then they had followed afar off, along the rocky valley of the Kedron, under the shadow of the walls, up steps which led from the private gate near the pool of Siloam to the upper city. They had stood before the palace gate. John was known there and had little difficulty in securing admittance. Then a quiet word to the maid who kept the door, and Peter was inside. Here they parted, John to find out where they had taken his lord and stay near him, Peter to mingle with the servants and soldiers in the courtyard below. For although it was now long past midnight, there would be no sleep in the palace that night. It was cold out in the open court, and the soldiers lit a fire to warm themselves. It was growing cold inside the heart of the disciple. He was in the midst of his enemies. His lord was somewhere in that vast building, a captive with cords round his wrists. There was nothing he could do here. Men were looking at him suspiciously. That maid who had let him in had peered intently into his bearded face. She was looking at him now. He tried to assume indifference but he was a poor actor. He had never been in a situation like this before. He was nervous and restless. There was a strange unreality about it all. The reaction of the past hours was setting in, and he was tired. So tired! Yet never had he felt farther from sleep. Was he going mad? The woman was at his side now, watching him curiously. He started suddenly at the sound of her voice. And thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. Simon looked at her, and at the inquiring faces turned towards him in the flickering firelight. He was terribly afraid. He became almost incoherent. I know not, neither understand I what thou sayest. Somewhere a cock crew. It should have been a warning, but Simon, moving away into the shadows, did not hear. The dawn was breaking on that fateful morning in Jerusalem, when Caiaphas had finally collected the majority of the Sanhedrin. Jesus, still tightly bound, was brought before the assembly, and the trial began. Its purpose was not to try him, but to find a suitable charge with which he could be taken to Pilate to confirm the death sentence. The proceedings began with a succession of false witnesses who gave evidence against him. 
This was so ill-prepared and the discrepancy so gross that to formulate a charge appeared impossible. The complete silence and calm dignity of Christ contributed to this effect. Looking at him, many of the Sanhedrin must have felt that they were being judged by their captive. Two witnesses came forward who either remembered or had been reminded of words which he had spoken three years before. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Here was the evidence which could have been used to secure the death sentence. Both sacrilege and sorcery were capital offences. Yet Carvus needed more. What would Pilate care about sorcery or sacrilege? There must be a more dangerous charge than that. The time was going and nothing was emerging. In a few hours the Passover pilgrims would be filling the streets and flocking into the temple courts, looking for the prophet from Galilee. The high priest was face to face with the possibility of losing his prisoner. The strained atmosphere was heightened by the silence and detachment of the man who was the subject of all this confusion. It was a battle of character. Caiaphas, high priest of Israel, was feeling the strain. He turned suddenly upon Jesus. Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus remained silent completely master of the situation, and the tension increased. It was then that Caiaphas, in his desperation, saw the answer. A simple answer which, had he seen it before, would have saved him this humiliation. It was illegal. But what was one further illegality when justice was thrown to the winds? He rose and faced Jesus, raising his right hand, his voice rang out clearly in the abruptly hushed court. I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Christ well knew the effect of this summons before he spoke. To remain silent now would be to frustrate his enemies, but he could not remain silent. His words were as majestic as his silence had been. Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. The trial was over. The tension had gone. Gloating over his victory, Caiaphas controlled his features. He looked stern and sad as he rent his clothes. He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold now, ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered as he knew they would answer. He is worthy of death. With their verdict, Caiaphas completed his case. Now he had the weapon he needed to make the death sentence effective.
Already he was thinking of the case he would bring before Pilate. A case so strong that if difficulties were raised, the procurator would find himself in a more desperate situation than he had ever known in all his compromising passages with the Jews. The Messiah of Israel was a king, and a king in a country subjugated by Rome was a threat to Caesar. To ignore that threat was to be guilty of treason. Caiaphas felt he had good grounds for satisfaction. Jesus was led from the presence of the Sanhedrin through the courtyard, past the waiting Peter to the soldiers' quarters, to be subjected to the vileness and cruelty of man. He had passed through his greatest spiritual crisis in the garden. Now the physical crisis was upon him. We shudder before the indignities he suffered. Our hearts cry out in protest as we see him covered with blood and spittle. We want to dissociate ourselves forever from those animal natures that mocked him and lashed him and held him down in chains. But from time to time we must summon our courage and look steadfastly upon the scene. It will tell us of his love. It will show us that it is possible to put him again to an open shame. Peter had not left the palace. He was standing miserably near the porch, gripped by indecision, fear and exhaustion. One of the maids was talking to a group nearby. They were talking of the exciting events of the night, of the unprecedented summons of the Sanhedrin in the first light of dawn, of the possible outcome of the trial. Peter's misery was written plainly on his face, and the maid understood. This, she said, was also with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter turned wildly round and faced her. I know not the man. The minutes went on interminably. Witnesses came and went. There was still nothing to show how things were going in the council chamber, nothing but gossip and speculation. A group of men passed. With them was a kinsman of Malchus. He paused opposite Peter and looked at him more carefully. Then he spoke. Did not I see thee in the garden with him? In that moment Peter fell headlong. Man, I, no, I know not what thou sayest. But his rough northern burr had betrayed him. Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth thereto. Peter the disciple became Simon the fisherman. He began to curse and to swear, to emphasise his abjuration. I know not the man, he cried again and again. A cock crew loudly. And then he saw his Lord. If Jesus had looked angry, Peter might have borne it. But there was no anger, only pain and love. 
Blinded by scalding tears, he rushed out. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.